Over the last um, several weeks, obviously, I've been talking about these three areas of concern that we have or areas that we should look to when we think about uh, what the world is coming to. And the Bible tells us that there'll be one world government, there will be one world economy and one world religion. And in many ways, we've illustrated that we are well on that road. Last week, I talked about things that would really affect us in America, and particularly I talked about the genocide of abortion and the fact that that is becoming promoted so earnestly uh, by the new administration that that can't bode well for us as a nation and as a people. But today I want to really include within that, because when we talk about these other areas of concern, one of the things that lies really central to all of that is the nation of Israel. In fact, in Genesis chapter 25, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said that how nations dealt with Israel would be basically a cause of judgment against the nations. And so the idea of Israel being really a focal point of world history, particularly in the fulfillment of the end times, Uh, is something that oftentimes gets overlooked. You and I, being born in this culture, suffer from what they call ethnocentricism. In other words, our culture, our ethnos is central to our life, and we look out from our world and, and project onto the rest of the world as if all the world revolves around us. I don't want to cause you to have an identity crisis, but from a prophetic point of view, the world revolves around what's taking place with Israel. Many people don't understand that's why the case. We're going to talk about that this morning as we get into it. But uh, one of the things that's always puzzled me um, is that many people do not enjoy the study of history. And I conclude because most history teachers are really bad. But if you have a really good history teacher, you get hooked on it. And I had one called my father who had me start reading books of history and great biographies when I was just a young boy. In the days before any kind of screens, we had book clubs, and he signed me up for one. And so I I read them voraciously. And I found that that's become a lifetime addiction. You see, intuitively, what we discover when we study history, I mean, really study it with an interest, it's really the story about us. It's a story about humankind, and it connects us all in the sense that it tells us where we came from, and even more significantly to many of us, where we're going. And that's why the great philosophers are often historians as well. Those two things tend to flow together because a historian looks at what has happened in the past and then projects that into the future, and that becomes many times a philosophical point of view or a way in which you view life. Many of us have heard oftentimes the famous quote of George Santayana, the Spanish philosopher who once warned, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, Many people don't even understand what that means, as if we're kind of preordained. But basically what he was saying is that all people given the same circumstances will almost invariably make the same choices and decisions. That there are certain things about our humanness, our humanity, that predisposes us to see things through a particular lens and to react in much the same way. So that Whereas the Chinese say the world history is cyclical and now it's their time to rule the world, uh, we don't say that exactly. It's not like it's a, a faded circle that we go in, but we just know that human nature tends to make the same choices. That's, that's how we interpret what people are going to do. I mean, if you've raised children, you've had personal experience with this. After you begin to figure out what this little booger is all about, you realize that given the same circumstance, he or she is going to do the very same thing. I mean, the one who crawled up in the counter and tried to steal cookies was always the same one, and he always got caught in the same place with a mouth full of chocolate. But I love it when my my wife said, did you get into the cookies? And he looks at her and goes, full cheeks like a squirrel. Nope. (laughs) It took him years to perfect the art of lying effectively. But also there's something that Aldous Huxley said that uh, the author of the book, The Brave New World, and it's, it's, it's a little complicated, but so insightful. He said, he who controls the past controls the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. What he was saying is that those who control the story of where we came from are the ones who can control where we're going to, 
And usually the one who controls where we came from, the story of where we came from, is someone who in the present is choosing to interpret, reinterpret, or misinterpret what happened to induce people to move in a particular direction. You see, history in itself is static. I mean, once it is lived, the facts don't change. But the understanding of history and the lessons that it teaches, the truths that are derived from it, unfortunately are open to interpretation and sometimes in misinterpretation that facts can be altered even to the point of becoming fabrications or we might say more directly outright lies. Societies regularly rendered their own interpretation of history. I mean, it's tendency of human nature is to assert our own claims of superiority based upon the richness of our own past heritage. And it's, it's everywhere in world history. I mean, you have Jews who feel like they're superior to everybody else because God said, you're my chosen people. Given their history, they probably want to say, can you choose somebody else for a while? But nonetheless, the Arab world believes that they are the ones who God has chosen, and they have a much different view of history and a heightened view of their, of their culture. In fact, part, <clears throat> part of the frustration of the Muslim world is that to be a Muslim means that you are the superior people, and yet when they have a country like Israel in their midst, which is far exceeding anything they've ever accomplished, they see it as a huge affront and something that needs to be wiped out and destroyed. So much so that the Iranian Ayatollahs can call us the great Satan and they call Israel the little Satan because only Satan could cause such blessing and prosperity. Certainly the Brits thought they were racially superior to everybody else. I mean, who else would create somebody like uh, Charles Darwin with his eugenics theories? Or you have the Japanese, believe it or not, who felt that they were the superior race and that they should govern over the world. Um, Many in America feel that way. I mean, it's kind of a jingoism that we have in our culture. Well, we are superior to every other culture, and oftentimes when you are in different parts of the world, they have references to what they call the ugly American. Uh, we tend not to feel any responsibility to connect with the culture that we're in because absolutely, they should adopt our culture. Now, get with it. And we've seen some of our invasions into other countries thinking that we could simply conquer them and give them democracy, and we're shocked when they weren't interested. Then on the other hand, we have the Chinese of today, who most people do not realize that, but the Chinese believe it's part of their ethic and their part of the Communist Chinese Party's theme is they are the racially superior people on the planet, and it's just a matter of time for them taking over, that the next hundred years, China will be the most powerful hegemonic power in the world, and everybody else will be subservient to them. And right now, it's a little hard to argue with them on that point. But you see, what each one does is we point to some past greatness and then lay claim to some imaginary superiority over others. And we do this not only national scales, I think we do it on a personal scale. I always tease my kids, you know, I say one day I'll be in a wheelchair, hardly able to do anything, and when people visit me at the nursing home, I'll say to them, I used to be somebody. And you know, <laughs> and they will look at me and go, yeah, right, and move on. But we all have this kind of fantasy of greatness that we never arrive at, and so we wait till we get older so we can lie about it. But nonetheless, <laughs> but I guess the more serious question is how do we know if our interpretation of history is the one that's right and true? And just importantly, how do we know whether a presentation of the history and the past is actually wrong and not right? Maybe a falsehood. Well, in the current assertion that history is written by the winners, that's a popular phrase that's thrown out there by uh, unhappy people who are trying to share the unhappiness. Um, they basically therefore say that whatever you've been taught as an American is automatically unreliable. And the question is, is, is that true? Is that really true? See, those who make such claims obviously know nothing of history and know nothing about those who wrote it. When you say that they only the winners write history, I would say, have you ever read the Bible? I mean, most of the characters in the Bibles were not the winners. They were serious losers, especially the prophets. 
especially the gospel writers. I mean, you realize that these people who gave us these records of what took place were people who were often on the short end of the stick they were describing. They weren't speaking it from a secular or worldly or personal victory as much as it was a spiritual overcoming in the most adverse and difficult of situations. You see, people who make those kind of statements are not seeking to represent history. Rather, they're making a political statement. They're promoting a political ideology. And they're not guilty of communicating history. They're guilty of trying to rewrite history so it will conform to their ideological predisposition. History in its purest sense, along with its cousin archaeology, seeks simply to establish the facts of history as scientifically as it possibly can. And the challenge for a historian is that history leaves so many blanks, blanks that historians will seek to fill, sometimes with their best guess, sometimes with their personal opinions, and sometimes with their worst prejudices. See, the modern world has produced some of the most egregious examples Nazism, communism, both of them rewrote history simply in a way that would affirm to them what the world was really like to support their ideology. They had no interest in whether or not what they were saying was true. It was all about convincing you to believe what they were saying. If something isn't true, though, it's got a problem. The reason that those ideologies failed was because they were fake history and they didn't really represent the human struggle accurately. You see, if something is not true, then it's not real. And if it's not real, it doesn't work. And that's such a simple concept that I find it escapes a lot of people's thoughts. I mean, think about it for a moment. If something is untrue, it's not going to work. My wife and I were trying to put together some chairs that my daughter had bought for her place in, in, in Tennessee, and, and my wife knows that as a craftsman, I, 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 I'm rather oxymoronic. Um, I always find a way to put things together backwards. I don't know. It always makes sense. And I'm reading these directions, and it was hard to understand because it, the, the product came from Canada, and so, you know, <laughs> we speak a different language, basically. And... Uh, and every, it was punctuated all the way through with A, A, A. I, anyway, so I was struggling with this, and I'm putting all these things together. It was really a lot of parts, and it took us about three hours to put the first chair together, and we had six to go. <clears throat> and fortunately, she came to my rescue. We tried my granddaughter. We, you know, but I think as, as we were trying to put all this together, one of the things we began to realize is that there was really only one way it was going to work, and we would say that was the true way. When we say something is true, what we mean is it, it works because it's the way it's meant to be. And so how you understand who you are and what you're all about is critical to living a life that makes sense. Because when something isn't true, it doesn't match what's real. And when something doesn't match what's real, it just simply won't work. And when you begin to look at your own life and realize, why is, it this, is, is my life not working out the right way? It's basically because you're probably believing something to be true that is not true. Whether it's guilt, shame, and remorse, and regret on one extreme, or it's an aggrandized, inflated idea of yourself on the other, we begin to fall into these extremes of ourselves and believe things to be true because of our own personal histories or even as it's being promoted within many schools now and around the culture and in universities and college, that if you're white, there's something terribly wrong with you. You know, kind of a reverse racism that seems to be popular today. That's why the Bible says in places like Proverbs 12.5 and 14.12 and other things, he says the way of a fool, and that's in this context, the fool is somebody who distorts the story of history. The way of the fool who distorts history may be right in his own eyes, but its end is the way of death. That's why Jesus made the statement in Matthew 6.23 when he said, if the light 
that is that which guides you, if the light that's guiding you in your life is actually darkness, how great is that darkness? And we might add, and the eventual disaster that it will bring into your life. These things really matter. I love those sayings where people, you know, when I was in Hinduism, they'd always say, well, all paths lead to the same summit. And I remember one day thinking to myself, where in the real world does that actually exist? Because I used to like to go hiking. We lived near Yosemite, and I loved to hike around Yosemite. And the thing was important is you made sure you were on the right path because I never found that I could take any path, and I ended up at Half Dome. You know, I might end up in Sacramento. The, they didn't all lead to the same place. There was a path that took you there, and that's the real world. This other nonsense of many paths lead to the same summit is just that. It's simple nonsense. And it's amazing how people can say stuff like that and never get called on it because most of us sit back and go, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But, you know, that's not the way it works. You know, my GPS oftentimes gives me three different options on which direction would I go. And, and uh, I, 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 always choose, I always choose the wrong one. But it's, it's important to realize that there is a straight path and there is a crooked path. There is a narrow way and there is a wide way. And Jesus was very frank. He said the wide way will lead to destruction. So all of this ties together because when we, whether we're talking about historical as an academic study or we're talking about history as being your story or we talk about history as being the Bible's story, which one we settle on as being true and correct is the one that will take control of our lives, and even subconsciously we will begin to make decisions based upon it. What becomes clear as you look back on the ideologies of things like Nazism or communism is that they were actually really bad ideas that people tried to justify their agenda by twisting the history that they said led up to them. They had whole conclusions about why people and the world was the way it was. The Nazis said it was a genetic thing. The, the communists said it was an economic and class and status thing. And so they thought if they could change those little ingredients, or even today with what we call critical race theory, when they say that everything is about race, again, they're going to find this is going to break down very quickly because everything isn't about race. There's a much more seminal issue in human issues. These people, I find, have never really read history. They just are trying to rewrite it. In the same way that we have Christian identity movements in this part of the world, which claims that the Bible supported things like slavery. Or you have radical Islam or the KKK that justify anti-Semitism and, and, and deny that the Holocaust ever happened. Or Antifa and BLM who promote, promote things like the 1619 Project, which is just simply uh, an essentially racist portrayal of America that bears no resemblance to any kind of historical facts at all. That every major historian or department of history and every university and college around the world has said, this is a pile of nonsense, editorial fiction by the New York Times. It has no basis and bearing upon history or the facts involved. But then again, we have so many people today who simply say, do not confuse me with the facts I've already made up my mind. We find that fake history is always one of the common elements. The SS under Heinrich Himmler spent millions and millions of dollars and man hours trying to trace back their roots to the Aryan supermensch, Ubermensch of, of, of Wagner and, 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 and Nietzsche's fantasies that they could somehow trace themselves to this pure Aryan descent, which ironically most of the Nazi leaders themselves did not really conform to. Hitler spent a great deal of effort hiding his Jewish roots. But bad and fake history is only a problem when it's not allowed to be countered with truth and facts and instead is silenced by canceling those who seek to expose the lies. Hence, we have our term today, cancel culture. The tech oligarchs and their minions just simply want to cancel out anything. I was sharing something with some, one of my family members the other day, and they said, well, I, 
how come people aren't talking about this? And I said, because it doesn't reflect well on the current administration. So they just don't mention it. It was George Washington who said, if freedom of speech is taken away, the dumb and the silent, the dumb and silent, we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. And so we find that it's critical if you're going to take control of a culture and the minds of the people in the culture that you begin to control the information and that's what cancel culture is all about. Which brings me really to the Bible as a book of history. It's not a history about everything. Genesis 1 and 2 were not written as a scientific treatise. They were written as a historical narrative to establish the basis of the origins of the universe and mankind and everything in our world. It doesn't speak about everything, but it speaks about things that matter. It speaks about what are the secrets of happiness and the causes of hurt, why there is life and why there is also death, that there's a heaven and that there's a hell, the choices do matter, not, even in, not only in time, but they matter eternally. The Bible tells us where we came from, that we're not self-created as the evolutionist would like to suggest, and science can't possibly even support spontaneous generation. Something does not produce, nothing doesn't produce something. I've seen a lot of some things become nothing, but that's the other way. That's called death. But basically it says we were created by God. And you cannot understand yourself or the world that you live in until you realize that you are a function of the creative hand of God. It tells us secondly who we are, that we're God's offspring, if you will. The fact that we were created in his image, that essentially that when we know things like love and peace and joy as well as anger and disappointment are things that are really inherent in the very nature of God himself, that he has placed that in us so that he who is a loving God could say to you and me, I love you, and we would understand what that meant. You know what? My iPad here, I try to say, I love you. It doesn't even respond. Sometimes Siri does. She's creepy. <laughs> Thirdly, it tells us why we do the things that we do. It explains to us, we do what we do because we are sinners and we have fallen from God's grace and we desperately need a Savior. Fourthly, it tells us how to get fixed, to repent of our sins and receive Christ as the one who can fix what's wrong with us and wrong with the world. And it also tells us where the story ends with the coming of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom upon the earth. You see, the Bible is the record simply of God's plan for redeeming mankind. It basically was God saying, okay, this is how I'm going to fix you guys. First three chapters, I'm going to tell you where you came from. Then third chapter, I'm going to tell you where you got it all wrong. And the following chapters are going to validate the fact that you get it wrong more than you get it right. And then I'm going to bring my Savior into the world, and he's going to save you from your sins. And if you believe on him, your life will be blessed. And if you reject him, you'll continue to make the same false judgments and, and bad choices. But unlike other ancient writings that are obviously heroic myths, this is a critical distinction, a heroic myth. You read them and go, well, this didn't happen. <laughs> I remember when I was supposed to read the Bhagavad Gita and this, the history of Krishna, and they said Krishna is the, the Hindu version of Christ. And I'm reading about Krishna, and I thought, I don't even want to meet this guy, much less know him. He's really kind of, besides he's got blue skin. I mean, this is weird stuff. You read the whole thing and just go, this is the stuff that bad dreams are made of. 
This could not happen. It bears no resemblance to anything in the real world. And then you read the Bible, and it gives you dates and times and places and people and situations, circumstances. The geography is right. The historical context is right. The people are right. The language is right. The description of things is right. Everything reads like a story that's being told about something that actually happened. So it's not a heroic myth. It is a historical narrative from beginning to end. The question is, can that history be trusted? <clears throat> well, if you just ask the archaeologist, see, the whole science of archaeology began by some scholars simply saying, can we dig in the ground someplace where the Bible says something happened and find that it exactly did exist? There were things like certain people like Sargon II, they said, oh, he never existed until they dug up his palace and found out he was one of the most powerful and greatest of all the kings. And it kind of goes along that way. Not too many years ago, they were saying in the 90s, up to the 90s, that, well, there was no such person as King David. He was just a fictional character. And then they dug up a piece of stone with his name chiseled on it. Well, he was just a, a minor tribal chief. He wasn't really a, a king of an empire until they found this massive, massive fortress. And on and on it goes that the field of archaeology has been the greatest supporter of the historical record so much so that Nelson Gluick said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single biblical reference. Or so William Ramsey, one of the great legends of archaeology, said, great historians are the rarest of writers. The first and essential quality of a great historian is truth. What he says must be trustworthy, and the Bible was written by great historians. Or Sir Frederick Kenyon, another one of the fathers of archaeology, said, in respect to the Old Testament, the evidence of archaeology has been reestablished its authority. You see, what makes the Bible significant and, and, and more unique than any of the writing is that it speaks both of the past, but it also speaks of the future. And that's what we've been doing for weeks, looking at the prophetic word of God as it looks to our future. So what does the Bible's record of the past tell us about what's coming in our future? Well, as I said, for weeks we've been talking about uh, these key areas of one world government, one world religion, and, and one world economy. I've tried to validate the fact that the Bible has foretold these things and described them, how they would come to pass, and paralleling that with things we see happening in our world that clearly indicate more so than any time in my lifetime and I think any time in the history of the world. We are moving in that direction at such a rapid pace, it's really kind of disorienting for most of us. That we step back sometimes, I, at least I do, and I go, I, I can't, I always saw prophecy as this thing that was going to happen out there in the future and now I feel like it's coming over the hill towards me. I mean, I can't even keep pace with it. When it said knowledge increased, that must be part of it because Justin, I went back and was going through some of my, my articles that I've been collecting for a while. There's over a thousand different articles on things that are going on that tie in with the biblical prophecy. And I think to myself, how in the world am I going to find the time to cover all of that with you just today? <laughs> well, I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> Hope you brought a snack. No, I'm going to narrow it down because there is one factor that I would be remiss in mentioning in relation to all these things that is central to it is the nation of Israel. My pastor used to refer to Israel as being God's timepiece. He says you can tell what time the world is in by what God is doing with the nation of Israel. As we look at God's dealings with Israel through history and into the future, we can trace where we are at in that trajectory. See, for many centuries, Christian theologians simply decided that <clears throat> because the Jews had been really wiped out in 70 AD, I mean, it's interesting that the historians tell us that they sold 250,000 Jewish slaves out of the port of Alexandria in Egypt and sent them around the world. And essentially, we find the land of Israel was depopulated And even from that point, not only were they conquered and enslaved and scattered, but even those who survived suffered 
hundreds of years of persecution. It should ask, we should ask the question, why is it the Jewish people are so hated around the world? Why is there even such a thing as anti-Semitism? You know, I've never met anybody who's anti-Babylonian. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. Why is it this perennial dislike that seems to go from generation to generation? Ordinarily, conquered people will meld into a culture and become part of it. They will lose their original language. They'll take on the cultural distinctives of that culture. And everything that they once were is lost and forgotten. So that you and I can sit here today and say, well, you know, my, my ancestors were French. Uh, your ancestors may be Spanish. Somebody else's French may be, uh, you know, uh, who knows what. <laughs> From, we're just this melting pot of people, aren't we? And yet the whole idea of the melting pot is that you put it all in one pot and now it becomes its own stew. I think we're Americans, it's probably just gumbo. But that's the idea that we don't think of ourselves first and foremost. It's a new trend in our culture today to start becoming a hyphenated American. Well, I'm an African-American, or I'm a Spanish-American, or I'm, you know, we don't, we don't have people saying, well, I'm a British-American. No, we just become, we are just Americans. This is kind of a strange thing that seeks to separate the culture and divide it into these non-connected Entities, and it never bodes well for a country and a culture when it does that. When we stop being bound by common values and we start breaking apart based upon our disagreements about what is important. Which is one of the things that makes Israel so unique because that was not the case with Israel. Despite their sins and the captivity that resulted, God promised that he would always restore them, that they would always once again become a nation And not just that, they would become a nation living in the land that he promised to them through Abraham 4,000 years earlier. As he said in Ezekiel 16, 60, he says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you, an everlasting covenant. This was on the eve of them being carried into captivity. (laughs) And their nation be completely evacuated and everything destroyed. Everything that was a memory of who they were were wiped out and destroyed. And he says, but I have an everlasting covenant with you. That word everlasting, uh, you know, if we wanted to translate directly from the Hebrew movement, it means it lasts forever. Synonyms for it are words like forever, always, continuously. You see, continuous is different from constantly. Continuous means it never ends. It's an unbroken chain. Constantly refers more to a repetition of action. He he doesn't say, well, I'll just have this covenant with you when you're on the good side and you're doing what you're told. He says, this will be an unending thing that I have with you. it's, It's perpetual. It has unending, unlimited future force. So what exactly is that everlasting covenant that he made with Israel? Well, first of all, it's most importantly to understand that it was an unconditional covenant. And there are different kinds. There are conditional covenants. It says, if you do this, then I will do that. Most of our business dealings are those kind of conditional covenants or contracts. If you provide goods and services or monies, then I will do this in response. And if you don't do it, then you have broken the contract and that agreement is null and void and you're no longer under obligation to keep your side of the contract because you didn't. And that's the problem with most marriages in America. They're contractual relationships. I will be faithful to you as long as you love me unconditionally for the rest of my life. Well, none of us have ever happened to imagine that or reach that kind of level. I mean, other than myself, my wife is the only one who's been exposed to unbreakable, unending, constant, unconditional love. (laughs) The rest of you, I don't know. you got to... But an unconditional covenant is so different because it just simply says, I'm going to do this. God said, this is what I'm going to do. I make an everlasting agreement with you, and it's not based upon you. Oh, there are consequences and there are punishments and so forth, but as far as being the people that I've chosen to be really 
the revealer of my plan for the world, uh, that will never change. That will follow you all your days. Specifically, the promises got down to simple things. It says, I will make you a great nation. And that's what happened during the days of David and Solomon. Israel was the most significant, powerful empire in that part of the world. I will make you a great name. Think about that. Abraham. The Jews claim him as their forefathers. The Muslims call it, claim him as their forefather. And even the Christians trace their origins to Abraham. Chapter 4 of Romans, Paul goes into great detail talking he's the father of faith. The man who God blessed because he was faithful, God said, I will therefore bless you. So his name has become great, greater than any man who has lived before, that even our greatest president was named after Abraham. Then next he said, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That was Christ. But last of all, and this is one become most contentious in our day and age, and to your offspring I give this land. It's interesting how people claim heritage rights to piece of the property. Some years ago, there was discovered a skeletal remains down in the Tri-City areas called the, uh, the, the Kennewick Man. And it was a great controversy because the Native American community was saying, well, it's obviously an Indian because we were the ones who settled here before anybody else, and so therefore we want the bones and we want to bear them. The problem was that the skeletal structure of this man bore no resemblance to any Asian descent or any American Indian descent. This was a, a person that we couldn't really categorize as being a Caucasian or whatever kind of racial or cultural distinction we got. It was somebody that was different from all of us. In other words, what, they really, what really revealed was that before the Indians came here and took over America, there were people living here whom they drove out and wiped out, and they took the land from them, and then Americans came and took it from the Indians. And I don't mean to justify some of the horrific things that are done, the genocides that take place by conquering people, but you have to understand every place in the world is populated by somebody who was conquered by somebody who came before them. It's the history of human nature. It really goes back to the Tower of Babel and will not stop. But it's the idea that somehow we have the right to a piece of property because our forefathers were here. And yet God says, no, I'm going to give this piece of real estate to Israel. And we often talk about it's the promised land. And if I were a Jew, I would say, could you give us something else? Because what God did is he gave him a piece of land that was like a highway. You have big empires to the north, you have big empires to the south, and the only way they can go and trade or fight with each other is to pass through your neighborhood. It's kind of like, I'm going to build you a house on a freeway. But God says, I'll keep the gates of the freeway closed if you're faithful to me, but if you don't, then I'm going to let the traffic flow and you're going to pay the price. And that's what so much of Israel's history has been up and even to the present time. You see, it was this promise of a perpetual homeland that seemed the most improbable of all things. So that many Christian theologians tried to interpret it allegorically and saying, well, just a metaphor and, and the, we are now the new Israel and all the promises God gave to Israel, now we have subsumed them into the church. And for centuries, the church was viewed as being completely distinct and separate from Judaism, not realizing that we're connected we're connected. What's so interesting is that twice Israel has been taken into captivity and scattered. The first time with the Bab by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Seventy years later, just as Jeremiah the prophet said, in 70 years you'll be back here. And sure enough, 70 years later they came. The great Babylonian empire had collapsed under the coalition of the Persians and the Medes. But then came in 70 AD the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Hadrian, in 135, they rebelled again, and he plowed the city literally underground and rebuilt a whole new city on Jerusalem called Aeolia Capitolina, named after his family. And the Jews were forbidden under sentence of death never to set foot in Jerusalem. And so for almost 1,900 years, the land of Israel was in the hands of 
other peoples. Until May 15, 1948, when the United Nations declared that Israel was a nation. And it was Isaiah who asked the rhetorical question in Isaiah 66, 8. He says, can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? And suddenly the answer becomes, apparently. <laughs> apparently, on, the very, on one day, May 15th, the United States says, you are a nation. And suddenly Israel was in a land again, even though they had lived there and contrary to all the misinformation about them, stealing it from other people. <laughs> the Jews that were there had paid to buy the property that the Turks didn't want. And he goes on to say in Isaiah 66, he says, you will be comforted in Jerusalem. And sure enough, in June 7th, 1967, Israel retook the city of Jerusalem, not from the Palestinians, as is so falsely reported, but from the Jordanian government who themselves had been created by the British and had taken over the territory illegally. And Israel, after being attacked by the Jordanian, took back the city of Jerusalem and have retained it as their property. But this becomes very significant to those of us who were saying, is there a little fulfillment? Literally, the nation's been rebuilt, but what else? Jesus said in, in Luke 20, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles, by non-Jews, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul, writing in Roman letters, said, Roman 11 said, the last days all Israel will be saved. And when would that be? He said, when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that God says, I'm going to put Israel into exile, and I'm going to focus on Israel or excuse me, focus on the Gentile world, but when I no longer am focusing on the Gentile world exclusively, and I begin to focus my attention on Israel, you'll know that we are coming to the time of the end. You see, today if you walk the streets of Jerusalem, you'll hear a once dead language, Hebrew, spoken everywhere. It's very confusing for me because the Hebrew word for yes is ken. So you might say that I'm spoken of throughout Israel. <laughs> but you will see people practicing the faith of their forefathers, although the temple itself has not yet been rebuilt, but they are doing the best they can with what they have. It won't be until the tribulation that the temple is built. In fact, I think that's one of the main projects of the first three years of the tribulation, is the Antichrist allowing the Jews to rebuild their temple. The same one that he will put his image in and declare him and Satan as being God. But you'll also see that the land that Mark Twain once described as a desolate country. In fact, in his, his book, Innocence Abroad, he, he wrote, given our over, uh, he says, a land that's given over wholly to weeds, a, a silent, mournful expanse, we never saw a human being on the whole route, hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. It's ironic because when the Jews, at the turn of the 19th, beginning of the 1900s, started returning to have a place to live where they were safe and free, they didn't just take the land, they paid good money for it. And the Turkish government, which controlled it, was more than happy to sell it because it was wasteful land. Most of the people who owned the country lived in, 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 uh, in, in the Istanbul and were not interested in this piece of property that was worthless. Plus, they cut down all the trees because they charged taxes based upon how many trees you had on your property. So the land was almost completely denuded, and it was like a desert land. There was nothing, nothing to compel it. Yet today, 70 years later, Israel has completely transformed the landscape. As one report said, Israel has emerged as a world leader in agricultural and world man water management. The highest cow milk productivity in the world. 
the highest tomato yield in the world, the lowest post-harvest grain loss globally. As a result of these achievements, many developing countries are turning to Israel to learn from it. And we begin to realize that truly, as Isaiah said, the wilderness and the desert will rejoice, and the Arabah, which is that uh, Arabian desert essentially, will bloom. So that today when you drive through Israel and you're in the most desolate parts of the country, you'll see large farming operations based upon the most advanced developments of irrigation. So the next time you look at the drip irrigation in your yard, realize this was developed by the Israelis. That all of the sprinkler systems that we use that we think are so cool were not developed here. They were developed by the Israelis and we just simply obviously took advantage of their discoveries. It's interesting, when Yasser Yarafat was try, trying to uh, destroy Israel, at least that's what his stated goal was, he said, we will drive them into the ocean and we'll make them drink seawater. Well, I didn't realize he was a prophet because the Israelis have developed a solar-powered desalinization plants that they have built along the coast so that now that 80% of their water comes from the Mediterranean Ocean. It's desalinated water. They've offered it to the rest of the Middle Eastern countries that suffer from the same water shortages, but up to now they've refused because they don't want to admit that Israel has a technology that's better than what they have. Pride makes you so smart. But here's what surprised many people. Currently, the Israeli shekel is the strongest currency in the world. It's one of a handful of currencies that are traded on the world market. The currency traders buy Israeli shekels because it is such a solid, consistent investment. They are a leader in technology and development and manufacturing. They're part of the, of the ten top nations who are technological leaders in the world. Israel is in the top ten. The United States is not. They've gained energy self-sufficiency as they've found natural gas in the Mediterranean Ocean and are now collaborating with Cyprus and other countries to produce it. They no longer have to rely upon anybody for their water. They don't have to rely on anybody upon their, for their, their fuel. And despite the fact that there are only 7 million people who are surrounded by 22 nations with a total population of a half a billion people who are basically pretty angry at them and would like to see them gone, nevertheless, when we look at Israel, they have not only survived, but they have thrived against all obstacles. It's called an anomaly a deviation from what we expect, a, a, a one-off, something that never happens. Normally it takes one generation for a captive nation to lose its identity, its language, its culture, and to fully assimilate into the new culture that they become a part of. Yet Israel and the Jews have stayed separate and distinct even when they've tried to meld. You see, that's what people don't understand. In Germany, uh, as one rabbi said, we were not uh, persecuted because we became too distinct. We were not distinct enough. As they were trying to enter into the mainstream of society and kind of put their heritage behind them, they became a threat. They were viewed as the ones who were lying and cheating and doing these things. And you get into history, it's kind of crazy because the European countries wouldn't allow the Jews to be landowners because they were Jews. And so... They had made them do the work that nobody of respectable means would do, and that's to become the bankers. <clears throat> In life, it's always that way. At some point, the bottom rail is going to become the top rail. It's just the way it works. And so because they controlled so much economic force, they became the source of hatred. And they literally, there are, are people of great wealth today in the world who if you track back their history, especially in Europe, you'll find that they were enriched by what they stole from the Jews that they murdered. Of course, <laughs> I've been to Germany many times, I can guarantee you that nobody knew what was going on. They had no idea. 
But the reason why they stay distinct is because like in 1 Kings 8, 53, when, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says to the, uh, to the Lord in his great prayer, you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance. You've separated them. That distinct identity that they would love to be able to leave behind to avoid the suffering and persecution, you have put that mark upon them, that identity upon them, and it's not something that's erasable. As a psalmist put it in Psalm 135, for the Lord has chosen Israel for himself, his own treasured possession. It's in light of all of this that there's one more aspect of God's promise to Abraham that again, I think tends to be overlooked or seriously not taken seriously by many powerful people in the world. When he says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. See, I believe a large part of Americans' historic success as a nation can be related to the fact that we're the least anti-Semitic country or nation on the planet. You would think it would be just the opposite, but let me tell you, even today in most parts of Europe, people have a tremendous hatred for Jews. They know it's not politically correct, but right now the UNN, UN is, is in the International Criminal Court. They're seeking to convict Israel of genocide against the Palestinian people. They don't really care much about Palestinians walking in with bombs and blowing themselves and everybody else up with it, but they do think it's unfair that the Israelis put up walls to protect themselves. You know what's interesting about walls? Walls don't work except that you're Nancy Pelosi. But, um, um, but walls don't work, and yet Israel built a wall around their population centers and terrorism dropped by 99.9%. Lives were saved. You know, you just, <laughs> you just can't get past the point that some barriers make sense. But America has been the least anti-Semitic country in the world, more willing to receive Jews as immigrants than any other country in the world. And I think more importantly, in the modern age, we have had unwavering support for the nation of Israel. When Truman was asked by the Russian uh, ambassador, why the United States would support Israel against the Arabs, he said, because it's right. But all that changed during the Obama years, and interestingly, so did American fortunes. America began to slip domestically. We began to become increasingly divided in ways that I'd never seen before when Obama came to the White House, that rather than making us a colorblind country, he decided to make us make notation of the color differences. That his Justice Department only prosecuted criminal acts against African Americans, but would not prosecute cases going the other direction. Economically, we began to experience the slowest recovery and unemployment became huge. Factories moved out of the country and we were told, this is your future, get used to it. It's the new reality. Those jobs aren't coming back. They left with your doctor who you can keep. <laughs> and, in, and, and inarguably, the U.S. had a miserably failed international foreign policy. I mean, that's not just me saying it. That, even people who think that Obama was the greatest president have to admit that as far as foreign policy went, that it was the most club-footed, um, hand-fisted way of doing things. I mean, they hadn't seen anything so, that bad since Jimmy Carter. I mean, remember Syria? Completely out of control. How about Libya? How about Benghazi? How about the Ukraine? or North Korea? And how about the fact that China surpassed the United States as the greatest economic power in the world during those eight years? Most people don't make the connection between 
increased energy costs and food costs and unemployment and all the rest. But so many of those things, I think, are directly related to this very hostile attitude. In fact, most of my Israeli friends says that he, has been, he was the, the most adversarial president that Israel had ne- ever dealt with. And that's why you have things like the Iran nuclear deal, which didn't do anything except increase Iran's efforts to fund terrorism around the world and to continually push forward to building a nuclear weapon and the ability to deliver it. And I don't want to forget about Egypt. When the president went there and spoke on his apology tour through the world and apologized for America's attitudes and jingoism and so forth, and what it did is led to the overthrow of the president and threw the country into chaos and civil war. And the Hamas, or the Muslim Brotherhood, took over the country. Um, all of that came on the heels of basically what they saw as American weakness. It's so hard for people to understand that the Arab world respects power. They don't respect nice words. And when our president went there and apologized, they saw it as an evidence of weakness, much like they're interpreting current situation. All that changed for a while with under the Trump years, especially after his recognition of Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. You see, every president since Ronald Reagan had promised that we would recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but when it came, push came to shove, they always passed the ball, kicked the ball down the road, and you know they didn't want to have to be responsible for the anger that might arise. Well, uh, inexplicably, Trump did it and was, was decried as being the worst thing we could possibly do. You're creating all this contract. And what followed was the longest period of peace in the Middle East that we have ever experienced. For once, we weren't sending our troops to fight wars in foreign countries for reasons that nobody could quite understand. But we know that the economy boomed, the lowest unemployment that this country has had in 50 years. That energy self-sufficiency was achieved The border was brought under control. ISIS was destroyed. It had surged under Obama's lack of leadership. Fascinating phrase, we're going to lead from behind. (laughs) You know, once I missed a flight, and I didn't lead from behind, I just got left. (laughs) North Korea was pacified, remember? We were guaranteed that his policies would put us at war. NAFTA was replaced. We were delivered from the Paris Climate Control Pact, which basically restricted our economy, but gave rights to the Indians and the Chinese to continue to put as many fossil fuels as they needed to because China is still a developing country, according to the World Trade Organization. But we find that the Chinese, the Iranian, the Russians' aggression stopped, and for the first time in 40 years, peace deals were signed in the Middle East, ending years of intransigence. But now we have a new administration, and which in terms of Policies, both domestic and abroad, I would say is, at best, I could say is Obama 2.0, except on steroids. The administration can already be called unprecedented, but not for positive reasons. Its pursuit of unlimited abortion and its lurch towards socialism through 50 executive orders written in one month, more than any president in the history of the United States, and most strikingly, the irony of his campaign promises that executive orders were undemocratic and he wouldn't rely upon them. You know one of the things I found with a lot of politicians? Whatever they say, they mean the exact opposite. But the nomination of most of his cabinet and and support staff are by all estimations the most anti-Israel, anti-Semitic cabinet ever appointed in the United States. They are diverse, I think, diverse in their mediocrity. But President Biden didn't didn't call the Prime Minister of Israel 
till a month after he was in office. Usually it's one of the first calls the president makes because they're one of our key allies. He didn't call for a month and only called then, I guess because Kamala wasn't available, and he got such grief from the media for this, what they said is remarkable. Even the liberal media said it's remarkable that he hasn't even called him. Because of that, he, he gave him a call, but it wasn't quite at the same level as uh, the premier, uh, the president of China. He spent two hours on the phone with him. And I was kind of critical. I thought, what could they talk about for two hours? That's un unheard of for world leaders. Usually they're busy. I'm not sure it went past his 8 o'clock bedtime, but it was, he's usually pretty busy. And then my wife explained it to me. She said, well, you have to understand that the translator was having such a hard time understanding what Joe was saying. It took so long. <laughs> I don't mean to be unfair to the man, you know. I, I've often been confused of being uh, at the beginning of dementia myself. But what really I want to get to here is that the same God who kept his promise to preserve, protect, and prosper Israel is the same God who also offered the warning. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse you, curse those who curse you. See, I believe God will further remove his blessing if we add to the sin of abortion, the turning of our national bank back on Israel. Yet, I'm reminded that it is one of the signs that we are entering into the final chapters of biblical history in what calls the time of the end. When Zechariah said, in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem and Israel. And even though Jesus said to us, no man will know the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven or the Son of Man, but the Father alone, yet he also went on to say, but when you see all these things, recognize that it is near, right at the door. Truly, this generation, the generation that sees all these things, will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I'm just saying it's looking increasing like we are that generation. And even though I am really disappointed with the current administration's policies towards Israel and abortion and a whole host of other things, um, always bad ideas that have always had bad consequences, that's really not what I think is most important to focus on. What is most important to focus on is God said, when you see these kind of things happening, and particularly the attitude towards Israel, he says, you've got to know that the end is near. And that's, I think, the thing that's most critical because, you know, you're not going to be an American in, in heaven. You know? You're definitely not going to be a Unitarian or a Hindu, but you're not going to be an American. <laughs> okay? You are going to be a full-fledged member of the kingdom of God living and worshiping with your God forever and ever. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, our citizenship is in heaven. Like Paul, who had Roman citizenship, he also understood that it had privileges with it, and he loved that, but he says ultimately his citizenship was in heaven, and ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. And I know that there can be Christians who have different political views on these things than I do. And I, you know, I, I'm good with that because when we're before the Father, not only will that not matter, but you'll get it right. <laughs> and this is why I spent my entire elementary grade school experience in the principal's office. Somebody said to my da daughter the other day, he says, your dad isn't afraid to say anything, is he? There are some things that I'm afraid to say, but I won't tell you what they are. <laughs> this doesn't happen to be one of them, because I know that time will prove it right. Father, I ask that you would help us to hear your heart in these things, that I've certainly expressed how I understand these things, and my efforts to give a straightforward statement about what your Bible says and what it declares. 
It is the most important history that we can ever study because it helps us to understand every other history and to evaluate them based upon how what your scripture says is true and right and good. Help us to become students of your word, Lord. Too many of us claim that we believe the Bible, but we can't really support that because we never really spend much time reading it. I pray that you convince us it's the most valuable thing that we have in our possession and we would spend hours of every day reading it and understanding it and struggling to understand the vocabulary, struggling to understand the history and the background, but yet, God, what rewards that pays when we put in that effort and that time. That what you said in your word is that we develop wisdom, the ability to make good decisions because we rely upon your word. We pray for that grace, that help, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.